thanks for inviting me. Uh, thanks, Birkbeck, for having me. It's Birkbeck Arts Week, everyone. That's exciting, isn't it? I'm part of Birkbeck Arts Week. Uh, that's exciting. There's some wine at the back if anybody would like to get themselves a drink uh, and things like that. <sighs> yeah, good. That's a lovely introduction. Thank you. So, uh, I... Uh, said to Darrell when he asked me if I could possibly come down and talk here, what, I, what, what could I possibly be interested in talking about? And I offered the title Dematerialising Theatre as a way into this, uh, this discussion, this presentation, I hope this discussion. Uh, and what I'm going to do, if that's possible, in the short amount of time that I have, is just talk to you a little bit about the principles behind this work, my work, Offer you some examples. I suppose talk about its history, its uh, its emergence, and and why it's happening, or why I think it might be happening, and also then talk a little bit maybe about where it's gone recently and where it could be going. Uh, so yeah, I am a theatre maker, uh, and I make what I call a dematerialised theatre. I work alongside a man called Tim Crouch, a playwright. I've worked with him since 2004, and we also call what we make a dematerialised theatre. Uh, and so it's a practice that I've been involved with for 15 years now. 15 years. And, and I suppose, when I say it's a dematerialised theatre, I will explain to you a little bit where the name came from in a bit, but when I say it's a dematerialised theatre, sometimes I, I, I think it's a name that, that works in, in opposition to actually what it's trying to do. In that, actually, I think my attempt, or our attempt, is to sometimes rematerialise the theatre. So to think about why we might make theatre, why we might make it now, uh, how it might be made now, in this world, which has many other forms and medias and ways of representing. Why, why might we make theatre? So it's a theatre that I think is not afraid to ask simple questions. Uh, and I like simple questions. I'm very fond of them. I'm very fond of them because I think if you ask some simple questions, often if you just let them hang in the air for a bit, then they... Hello, come in. That's all right, don't be sorry. It's Birkbeck Arts Week. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. That's all right. Latecomers are uh, allowed. I'm just talking, I'm Andy, and I'm just talking about dematerialised theatre. That's what's happening here, <laughs> in Birkbeck Arts Week. You're very welcome. Uh, so, I'm not afraid to ask simple questions. I like simple questions. I like questions like this. What is theatre? What is acting? How might we make theatre now? Why? might we make theatre now? So I'm just interested in throwing those things into the air and letting them bubble up a bit on the surface and make us think about what it might be that we're doing when we make theatre and also in some sense I think late, lately or in the last five years of my work started to think more and more about what we might be able to do with the theatre. Why might we do theatre and what theatre might be able to do? Uh, and as Dara said in his introduction, a lot of my work has been solo work, if such a thing is possible, which I think is a beautiful thing to say, because I often talk about my work as a solo artist or a solo performer, a person who has written and will perform the thing on his own to a group of people as a collaboration with an audience. So 
it's kind of the most collaborative form of theatre that can be, really, because you always have to think from the moment that you begin making it about the audience that are going to meet it. And the first person, that, or the first audience I often think that meets it is me. I write it onto a computer and then I look at it and I'm the first audience. And then slowly something starts to happen where it is developed into maybe I'll give it to a friend to read or a trusted voice or I'll read it for somebody else or I'll ask some people to hear it and then slowly that audience grows and that collaboration continues. So yes, there is no such thing really, I think, as a solo practice. A theatre is a collaborative practice and a solo practice in a way uh, is, yeah, is for me the most collaborative practice there is. Recently, somebody sent me a quote uh, which talked about how, uh, from Ken Dodd, of all people, he talked about how he was in a double act with the audience. He didn't think that he was a solo performer or a, a stand-up comedian, a solo comedian. He was in a double act with the audience. And so it was nice to be thought about in the same phrasing as Ken Dodd. I enjoyed that. Yes, yeah, so, uh, a dematerialised theatre. I talk about a dematerialised theatre as being a theatre which operates on principles of removal and reduction and restriction, in that it asks questions of itself and it takes things away until all it's left with is the essence of something. So it asks why things might be needed and if they're not needed or if it's decided that they're too excessive then it will go, I don't need those things. So it very often looks like this. It looks like me standing here talking to a group of people like you sitting there. That's how it ends up looking. And that feels to me like a, a gloriously participative act. A communion, in a way, between people. Uh, Richard Southern, who wrote a book called The Seven Ages of Theatre in the 60s, which was quite fashionable when I was studying theatre, but it's not referred to much anymore. I don't know why. He's a he was a theatre architect. And he wrote a book called The Seven Ages of Theatre, which surfaced recently because a man called Alan Reed, who works at King's, uh, used the model for a book about performance, The Seven Ages of Performance. He, he asked the question at the start of this book, what is the essence of theatre? And this is the reply that he gives. Any work of art is an address in some form by an individual to a number of people. So that's kind of the fundament, the foundation, the bottom line for me of theatre. Here I am standing here addressing, using the form of words and thoughts and ideas, a group of people in a room. So this is a talk, a discussion, a dialogue as part of Birkbeck Arts Week, but it could also be seen as a performance in some way. It is a performance in some way. So anyway, the processes of this work very often question rigorously, both on my own and also when I'm working with Tim Crouch, who I work with as a co-director usually, but as Dara said, we also wrote and performed a show together. The processes will involve rigorous questioning, where we say, do we need that? Do we really need that? What is that doing? Why is that there? Why have you done that? Who has written that? Why is that on the stage? Does it need to be on the stage? And slowly things get peeled away, they get taken away, until we're left with what we might call an essence. An essence in a kind of you know, like MasterChef and cookery programmes when they go, you've reduced that sauce down to the tastiest thing it could be. I kind of think of it in the same way. that You take it down, down, down until it's 
the most flavoursome thing that it could be or might be for some people. Some people don't always like it. We're not to everyone's taste. That's fine. That's fine. But what it does need, or what its most essential element for me is, is I think an audience. It needs an audience. Because for me, if there isn't an audience, there isn't theatre. Yeah? I can think of examples of theatre that don't have performers, that don't have lights, that don't have sound, that don't have directors, that don't have video effects. I can think of millions of examples of theatre where things are taken away. But I have asked this question a lot of times around the world, and I have yet to receive a satisfactory answer. Can anybody here give me an example of theatre that does not have an audience? I can't think of one. Anybody? If anybody can challenge me on that, I would just be filled with joy. But I can't ever think of an example of a theatre that hasn't got an audience. Somebody once said, operating theatre. <laughs> and I think that's true in a way, but I also think an operating theatre has an audience of some description. It has people watching things and thinking things and doing things in relation to what's going on in the theatre of operations. <coughs> Any others? Somebody once said to me, oh, uh, a production's going on tonight and nobody's bought a ticket to come and see it. That's also <laughs> theatre without an audience. And I said, well, if the performers still play it, even if it's somebody on their own, they're still in some way being the audience to themselves or to each other. I think. I think. Nobody. Keep that in your head. Keep it in your head. And if in, in any number of years, months, days, weeks, you think of an idea, Email me, please, or contact Workback and say, I've realised the example. So that tells me something. That tells me something. That if there isn't an audience, then it isn't theatre. So, for me, this work is audience-centred. You know, for me, and the audience is the proving agent of the theatre. They're the people that it happens for. They're the people it happens inside. You know, people can be on stage mucking about, doing all sorts of things, and thinking about and talking about all sorts of things, and it's inside the audience where the dilemmas or the ideas or the <coughs> stuff is happening. Hello. Come in. We're talking about theatre. And audiences, and how audiences are the most important thing. So, yeah, so audiences. There is a line at the beginning of one of Tim's plays called England where the two performers who perform that play say to the audience, thanks, thanks very much. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't be here. And that's kind of one of my favourite lines in a way of, of all of his work because it's just, it has greater, deeper resonance over the course of the play, what it means for the story that the play is trying to tell, but it, but it blatantly and openly says to the audience at the very beginning of the show, you are what is making this. You are what is making this. So that feels really important to me. And I hope you will see over the course of this presentation and also the discussion that we will maybe have off the back of it, yeah, how important that is to me. An audience theatre. Theatre happens inside an audience. 
Uh, and so also this is a theatre that is interested in some way in the form of theatre, the form of theatre as well as its content. I very often go to the theatre, and you may disagree with me on this, and I'm sitting watching the theatre, and there are lots of people doing things on the stage, which I don't know how much they've thought about what they're doing in relation to how they're telling the story. In that they may be they're borrowing or bringing onto the stage, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, other forms, filmic forms, naturalistic forms, forms of acting that are more realistic or attempting to be more realistic. And while that sometimes works for me, I sometimes get frustrated that there hasn't been more attention, perhaps only for me, it's subjective, it's totally subjective. I get frustrated that there hasn't been more attention paid to the fact that we're in a theatre and that we're watching theatre. Or it seems to me that that's what I'm reading. So a theatre that really thinks about why it's theatre, why it's telling its story with theatre and not another form, and what, and what that means for the story that is being told. And so the form and the content are things that we try, I try, and Tim also tries, I think, to bring very close to each other. So to find a form, a way to tell the story, which matches and speaks to and relates to the story that is being told. So that feels a very important thing to say, and I hope that, that, that it will be explained more as I go on. Right? So yeah. And it's relationship to tradition. I don't think, lots of people talk about this work as very you know, contemporary, it's contemporary theatre. Yes, it is contemporary in the sense that it is made now, so it's contemporary. But I think it's also got some great traditional relationships to traditions of theatre. Storytelling, probably the main one, it always tries to have somewhere at its centre the telling of a story. So storytelling feels very important to me. And sometimes that's in the world of contemporary theatre and performance, it's not a very fashionable thing to say, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Storytelling feels really important to me. And how to tell a story, trying to find a way to tell a story, also feels very important. The, the essay, The Storyteller, by Walter Benjamin, if anybody's familiar with that, talks about how the, the figure of the storyteller in 1936, which is when he wrote it, is kind of disappearing and becoming less relevant to the world at a time in the world where there was great technological upheaval and also where the, the, the First World War, what we call the First World War, had ended and the spectre of the Second World War was appearing. And he said in that essay that things had changed so significantly that a generation that had gone to school on a horse-drawn streetcar now stood under the open sky in a countryside in which nothing remained unchanged but the clouds. And beneath these clouds, in a field of force of destructive torrents and explosions, was the tiny, fragile human body. So that's a big statement, but the idea of suddenly the world changing or being so significantly turned into something different that humanity had changed and its response to things and how it responded to things had changed. And I don't think in any way, I'm not trying to align myself in any way with that, but just to think about how a story is told feels really important in relation to that. A lot of people have commented on that essay about saying it's the death of the storyteller. That's what he's saying, he's saying the storyteller is dead. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think what he's saying is we have to find new ways to tell stories. And if he's saying that in 1936, 
How do we think about that in 2017? <coughs> is my question to you, my unanswerable, unanswered question. So anyway, yeah, a brief history of dematerialised theatre. So in 2001, I was living in London, in Golders Green, in a bedsit in Golders Green, and I'd left university and I was trying to make theatre, I was trying to do theatre. I'd moved to London and I was trying to, trying to find my way into the world of theatre. And I couldn't really find my way into the world of theatre. I, I made lots of things in fringe theatres, uh, <coughs> in uh, Kentish Town and, and in Camden, and in a place in Barnet, and, and lots of people would come and see it, and people would come and see it, and they would go, well, it's not really theatre, is it? That's not really what you're doing, you're not really doing theatre. What you need to do theatre is, you need to do this, you need to do what they're doing over there. And you're not doing that, you're just standing saying things, or you're trying to get people... And I was like, oh, okay. So this is not theatre. A bit frustrated, should go and do something about that. So I went to a place called Darlington College of Arts, which is sadly not there anymore as an institution, but I did a master's degree in a subject called performance writing. And I did that degree in order to kind of get away from theatre, because loads of, loads of people had told me that I wasn't doing theatre. So I was like, well, I should find out what I'm doing then. So I went to art college, and I did something called performance writing, and I, and I stepped away from the theatre, and in that process, found myself actually having the confidence to do what I wanted to do. And so I stepped towards it. I stepped towards it. I kind of all of a sudden found myself going, it's all right, I can just do it and say it's theatre, and if I'm confident enough or bold enough, then that's fine, that's what it is. So I started making work there that I really started to feel I was able to say was theatre. And so funnily enough, I left that, I finished that degree course, feeling more confident about it. And while I was there, I encountered a book called Six Years, The Dematerialisation of the Art Object, a book by an art critic called Lucy Lippard, which charts the progress of conceptual art between the years of 1966 and 1972. So it charts a load of people making conceptual art, mainly in America, but often in Britain, mostly in the Western English-speaking world, but also in other places. A load of people making art, conceptual art, idea art, art that used, in her words, that, that attempted to do more with less. You've seen that kind of art, like Yoko Ono and Gilbert and George, instruction pieces, pieces that are just like, you know, go for a walk in your favourite place, you know, so you go for that walk and you go, where's the art then? Is the art in the instruction or is it in you doing the walk? Or it's in the idea. It's in the idea. And also, interestingly for me, reflecting on it now, it's also in the audience. That work is in the audience in some way. Existing in the audience. Or asking the audience, inviting the audience, and making a suggestion to the audience about something. So I, f I read this book. A tutor told me to read it, and I had a look at it, and I went, great, this is great, as a kind of foundation for what I want to make. This is great, because I'm really interested in this. I'm interested in doing more with less. That's the, her phrase in that book. This is an artwork that attempted to do more with less. Which she points out in the introduction to book six years, Lucy Lippard is her name, if you're interested in looking up. She says it's different from less is more. That's different from less is more. The emphasis is different. An attempt to do more with less. 
So it's kind of exciting for me because I'm a, I'm a student doing not theatre but then realising that what I'm doing is potentially theatre. It's telling me that I can do it with very little, which is good news because I haven't got much money. But also, I'm interested in doing things without much because of what that does to the audience and what that means for the audience. And so slowly those things start to fall into place. And then 2003, just as I left that degree course, my friend Tim Crouch, who I'd met in 1999, I'd met in 1999. Can I tell you this? Yeah, I can tell you this. I met him when we were doing a corporate job for the Carphone Warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> All right? We're going to podcast this job. He might listen to it. I've blown his cover. The great conceptualist. He, he, will tell, he will tell you that it was for Nokia mobile phones. My memory of it is different. It was for the car phone warehouse. We were working for the car phone warehouse because we were young, poor artists that needed the money. Anyway, while we were working for the car phone warehouse, uh, he was reading a play called Offending the Audience, which is a really important play for me. And I was like, I know that play. And we had a chat about that play. And we kept in touch. And then in 2003, whilst I was away doing not theatre, but theatre at Darlington College of Arts, he was writing a new play called My Arm. And My Arm is a kind of, yeah, I'll, I think it's a kind of extraordinary play. He calls it, we refer to it as the mothership of all of his ideas. In that play, Tim invites people to give him objects at the beginning of the play. Nothing bigger than a shoe is the invitation. So whatever's in your pockets or in your bags, he comes around the audience with a tray and you give him your things. So it can be a phone or your wallet or your keys or whatever. And he promises that he won't break them or knacker them or hide them or do any tricks with them. And he puts them on a table with a, with a video camera pointed at it so you can see it on the screen. And then those objects become the characters in the play. So he tells you, like, here's a scene. This is my dad and this is my mum and here's me and here we are watching telly in 1972. And here we are on holiday in 1974. And he, and he doesn't, like, manipulate them. He doesn't go, oh, look at us, we're watching telly. He just shows you them. And he goes... This is what they are. And because it's the theatre, and the theatre is a place where one thing can exist inside another thing, that's what can happen in the theatre, you just go, great. And he tells you the story, and it's rather lovely. And the play is about a boy who becomes a work of art. He puts his arm above his head. And in that action, he puts his arm above his head as a, as a, as a demonstration, as a kind of act of rebellion. And he becomes a work of art. And he becomes a body of art. He gets sold to a collector. In the end, the collector buys him, ship, like ships him to New York. And at the end of the play, he dies. Because he's held his arm above his head for so long that everything's just gone necrotic and died and everything is, you know, bad with his arm. Never once during that performance does Tim do this. He never does that. He never holds, for the benefit of the podcast, he never holds his arm above his head. It's, a, it's an imaginative act. It's an imaginative act. But it's a very strong imaginative act because it asks the audience to invest. I think it asks the audience to invest. And the audience do invest. And then sometimes the audience have, have, have got really annoyed at the end because of him telling his story in that way. And it's not him at all. He's not dead. He's there, alive, telling the story. He doesn't die at the end. 
Anyway, so he was making that play in 2003, and I went to see that and was really excited that he, you know, my mate was doing some stuff. And then in 2004, the end of 2003, beginning of 2004, Tim was starting to think about a new piece of work, which he knew was going to be called an oak tree, which was inspired by a work of art called An Oak Tree, 1973, by Michael Craig Martin, a very famous work of conceptual art that, interestingly enough, was made one year after the period of time that Lucy Lippard was documenting in 1970. So she went to 1972. An Oak Tree is called An Oak Tree, 1973, by Michael Craig Martin. And it consists of a glass of water on a shelf. And next to the glass of water is a text. A text in which a questioner, Q&A, a questioner who I presume is just a sort of interested individual, asks A, who I, is the artist, about what the work is. And, and the artist explains to him what the work is. When it first appeared somewhere in Soho, in the little gallery, you could take the text away. But now, in the National Gallery of Australia, which is where the work belongs, but in the Tate Modern, which is where we saw it, Tim saw it, it was just the glass of water on the shelf and then the text is on the wall next to it. So, here is the text. Can I ask if anybody would be interested in coming and reading a bit of this text for me? Can I have a volunteer? Come on then, great. What's your name? Uh, Johnny. Johnny. Thanks, Johnny. Great, here you go. Thank you. I had Dara on standby, but I knew that I wouldn't need to ask him to step up. So this is it, right? We're going to recreate it, Johnny. Here's the glass of water. It's a plastic cup in this instance. And it's on a shelf, but it's on the table. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a question. And you, if you can just sight read it, it doesn't matter about getting it right. It's not an audition. You just could just sight read A for me. Okay. And then I will try and explain, I'll talk a little bit about where we got to from this text. So this is from an oak tree. An oak tree. 1973 by Michael Craig Martin. A glass of water on a shelf. Next to the glass of water is the following text. To begin with, could you describe this work? Yes, of course. What I've done is change a glass of water into a full-grown oak tree without altering the accidents of the glass of water. The accidents? Yes. The colour, feel, weight, size. Do you mean that the glass of water is a symbol of an oak tree? No, it's not a symbol. I've changed the physical substance of the glass of water into that of an oak tree. It looks like a glass of water. Of course it does. It didn't change its appearance. But it's not a glass of water, it's an oak tree. Can you prove to have claimed what you have done? Well, yes and no. I claim to have maintained the physical form of the glass of water and, as you can see, I have. However, as one normally looks for evidence of physical change in terms of altered form, no such proof exists. Haven't you simply called this glass of water an oak tree? Absolutely not. It is not a glass of water anymore. I have changed its actual substance. It would no longer be accurate to call it a glass of water. One could call it anything one wished, but that would not alter the fact that it is an oak tree. Isn't this just a case of the Emperor's new clothes? No. With the Emperor's new clothes, people claim to see something that wasn't there because they felt they should. I would be very surprised if anyone told me they saw an oak tree. Was it difficult to affect the change? No effort at all. But it took me years of work before I realised I could do it. Great, thanks Johnny. We'll stop there. You can take this with you and you can Google this, everyone, if you're interested in reading further. But the conversation goes on. 
Stay there, Johnny. We're going to read something again. Because you're so great. You're so great. You're doing really well. So, uh, this is like, for us, became a manifesto for performance. A manifesto for acting. Right? A manifesto for acting. And I will try and illustrate why this is. Now, the idea of one thing being able to exist inside another, that idea of one person being able to exist inside another person through a character. Remember I said at the beginning, what is acting? Okay, so now we're going to get someone to do a bit of acting. Who would like to, can I have another volunteer? Come on, there must be another volunteer. Johnny's been brave and it was great, wasn't it, Johnny? It wasn't a problem? A lovely time. Thanks. <laughs> so we're having a good time up here. Somebody else come and join us. Somebody, anybody. Oh. Come on, great. What's your name? Kelly. Kelly, thanks, Kelly. Right, Kelly, just stand here. Just stand here. All I'm going to ask you to do, Kelly, is just be Kelly. Yeah? So just be there. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to give me a character from a play. Anybody give me a character from a play? Any character? Any Miss Julie. Miss Julie. Brilliant. Okay, so now, Kelly, just stand there, be Kelly. Johnny, we're going to try and read it again. Okay. And we're going to change some of the words, if we can do it. Let me get this right. I sometimes get this the wrong way around. When we get to the words glass of water, we're going to say Kelly, okay. right? Or a variation. So change Kelly, not change a glass of water. And when we get to the oak tree references, we're going to say Miss Julie, all right? We're going to say Miss Julie. We're going to see what happens when we do that. Okay. You all right for that, Johnny? Can we go over it one more time? Sorry. Yeah. So, of course we can. Thank I you. want to make sure I've got it right now. <laughs> Glass of water is Kelly. Yeah. Oak tree is Miss Julie. Julie. Great. All right. To begin with, could you describe this work? Yes, of course. What I've done is change Kelly into a full-grown Miss Julie without altering the accidents of the Kelly. <laughs> the accidents? Yes. The colour, feel, weight, size. Do you mean... That Kelly is a symbol of Miss Julie. No, it's not a symbol. I've changed the physical substance of Kelly into that of Miss Julie. It looks like Kelly. Of course it does. <laughs> I didn't change its appearance, but it's not Kelly, it's Miss Julie. Can you prove to have to can you prove what you've claimed to have done? Well yes and no. I claim to have maintained the physical form of Kelly, and as you can see I have. However, as one normally looks for evidence of physical change in terms of altered form, no such proof exists. Haven't you simply called Kelly Miss Julie? Absolutely not. It's not Kelly anymore. I've changed its actual substance. It would no longer be accurate to call it Kelly. One could call it anything one wished, but that would not alter the fact that it is Miss Julie. Isn't it just a case of the Emperor's new clothes? No. With the Emperor's new clothes, people claim to see something that wasn't there because they felt they should. I'd be very surprised if anyone told me they saw Miss Julie. Was it difficult to affect the change? No effort at all. But it took me years of work before I realised I could do it. Brilliant. Okay, so thank you, Kelly and Johnny. And let's give you a round of applause. Great. So, that's acting, right? Kelly just did some amazing acting. She was Miss Julie. She was Miss Julie, because there was a frame placed around that said, this is what we're doing now, I'm Miss Julie. And I always think it's very interesting, and I think it's related to the, the, the kind of time span of this work. It feels to me that there has been, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, a great kind of philosophical question around ideas of authenticity, what's authentic and what's real, 
yeah? What's real? And so we hear about actors who go to great lengths to, to grasp a reality, to get a reality. The one I always think of is Bobby De Niro getting his boxer shorts made by the same person who made Al Capone's boxer shorts in order to make him play Al Capone better. <laughs> right? And that's great and everything, and it's interesting as a kind of legendary story, but for me it's very interesting in relation to acting about, about how did, did that make his Al Capone better because he had the same boxer shorts that was made by the same person that made Al Capone's boxer shorts. And there is a very interesting book called Playing for Real by Mary Lucas, who's, a, who's an academic at York University, where she talks to actors about the lengths they go to to get real people, to play real people, and what they do. And they talk about, you know, things that they did and little ticks and, oh, I once I understood that. And I, and, I, and I think it's an interesting piece of work, but I also think it's a very funny piece of work because I go, I didn't know that Harold Wilson walked with a particular way because he stubbed his toe when he was 15 years old or whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't know that. So Jeremy Irons didn't really need to tell me in order to be Harold Wilson because he was still Jeremy Irons. In the same way that Kevin was still... You know, see what I mean? See what I'm getting at? So I think that's very interesting. And it's always, you know, when Jude Law went to, to, uh, to Elsinore or where they think Elsinore was in order to do Hamlet, it's like, wow, Jude Law's really going to Elsinore to do Hamlet where they think, I don't know if Shakespeare even went there. Do you know what I mean? And also, I, you would not have to have been there in order to watch Hamlet. I think that's very interesting in terms of our reach for authenticity. And so there's a kind of foundation, a base layer of acting there for me. And an oak tree was an interesting one because Tim Crouch wrote, was thinking about writing an oak tree and he wanted a performer to be in it that was not an actor, not an actor-actor. And so he asked me. He asked me if I would be in it. And I said, I'm not gonna, I don't want to be in it. I'm not interested in being in your play, but I'm really interested in working on it. And because he'd done my arm with the objects, we had a discussion where what came out of it was the idea to invite a new actor on stage every night to play the other character in that play. So an oak tree is a play that is performed by two people. The second person changes every night. They are invited on stage. They don't know what they're going to say or do. I don't know if any of you have seen it. They have no idea what they're going to say or do. And they are led through the play by Tim. And it is a story, it tells a story, and they're playing a character in that story who is, who is disabled by grief. They play a father, it doesn't matter who they are, female or male, both, both female and male people have played that character. They always stand on stage and they play a father who's, who's so struck by grief that they don't know what to do or say next. That's the character that they're performing as. They don't know what to do or say next. And so as an actor who does not know what they're going to do or say next, they're like perfectly placed to perform that. It's like brilliant method acting. Yeah, they're invited on stage, they don't know what they're going to do or say, and Tim guides them through the play. And they can kind of perform it, not perfectly, but they can, they can render that person because they don't know what they're doing and they don't know what they're going to say next. They get given bits of script, they get fed lines through an earpiece. There's different ways that they are delivering the story. But the story is delivered, and I, and I think delivered successfully, partly to do with that device being in place. And then being able to act, 
being able to act a character called Andy Smith, funnily enough, who is 43 years old, but never having to put on a costume or you know, do a particular thing or walk in a particular way. They are just there and they are them in the way that Kelly was misused. So we worked on that play together and then we have subsequently worked on lots of plays together. Uh, yeah, An Oak Tree England, a play called The Author, a play that we wrote together called What Happens to the Hope at the End of the Evening. Uh, which we performed for the first time in 2013 and toured around. Got a really nice review off the Irish Times, which stated, very funnily, Andy Smith, who is not a professional actor. That's what they said about me. <laughs> so Tim was right in a funny kind of way when he asked me in 2004 to come and be in it because he wanted someone who wasn't an actor. He was right in a way. But I thought that was quite funny because I was like, what does that mean? It was a really nice review, you know, but what does that mean? Why do they feel the need to note that I am not a professional actor? I wear it as a badge of pride. I always want to put it on a flyer. You know, I always want to put Alex Smith, who's not a professional actor. Because I, I, would go, I would go and see something when I, yeah, anyway. So, uh, so we have made lots of work together. We made a play called The Author, uh, which I'm going to read you a bit of that. I think I've got time. And, and the author, again, talking about form and content, form and content. The author was a play that literally happened inside its audience. Sadie, you've directed a production of this play in translation. That's nice to have you here. Uh, so, that is, this is a play that literally happens inside its audience. It was set in the Royal Court Theatre. It was first performed in the Royal Court Theatre. And it, and it was made into two banks of seating facing each other with like hardly any space, about as much space between these two chairs in the theatre. And the audience came in and sat down and they just faced each other. And inside the audience, two on each side, were four performers who then sat and told the story. So it literally happened, and, and metaphorically and creatively, happened inside its audience. And at the beginning of the play, uh, first performed by a lovely man called Adrian Howells, whose character was called Adrian. The characters in the play are all named after the people who performed them. Again, that, that relates to ideas of authenticity. At the beginning of the play, very gently, very quietly, and without any kind of fanfare or any lights going down, Adrian would say this. So, so he would be sat next to some people. I love this. This is great. Isn't this great? This. All this. When I came in, when I came in and I saw this, just this, I thought, oh, wow. Did you? Maybe you didn't. Maybe you thought, oh, Jesus. Did you? Maybe you thought, oh, Jesus Christ. Maybe. This is such a versatile space, isn't it? Isn't it versatile? They can do anything in here, can't they? I'm Adrian. I'm Adrian. And you are? Hello, what's your name? Ella. Ella. Do you love this Ella? My knee's touching like this. Do you? Who you'll be next to? I'm next to you, Ella. 
What's your name? Eleanor. Eleanor. <laughs> That's beautiful. You're beautiful. Isn't Eleanor beautiful, everyone? Yeah. Yeah. I'll shut up. I'll shut up. Someone else go. Is everyone all right? Are you? What are we supposed to do, I wonder? Do you know? It sounds good, doesn't it? Does it? I've got some cuttings in my bag. I've got a preview from the Metro. <laughs> you can't keep me away, I see everything. Shall I read it to you? Here, let me read it. It's not as though anything's happening, is it? It's not as if we're missing anything. Here. Anyway, Tim Crouch's new play is on at the Royal Court Theatre. Oh, blah, yeah, well, it doesn't really say anything, does it? Doesn't say anything. Everyone's looking at me. Don't look at me. I'm not ready for this attention. Don't look at me. I've only just had the stitches out. The bandages off. Look, it's almost good as new. We're all so gorgeous, aren't we? Look at us. Look. I think we're better looking than the actors, don't you? Do you, Ella? Do you? Look at us. We're gorgeous. Maybe not better looking, but more realistic, at least. More chance of a snog from one of us than from the Prince of Denmark. Don't you think, Eleanor? And you're looking at the kind of man who likes to hang around at the stage door. I waited for ages for Ray Fiennes once, after some French play. Incurable romantic me, aren't you, Ella? No? All that glamour? I can't resist it. But I often think, I think, I think that the most fantastical, the most made-up thing in the theatre is us. Don't you, Eleanor? I mean, I saw a play last year, and I remember thinking, that writer has imagined me. I've been imagined. Poorly imagined. The audience has been badly written. <laughs> We're all going to have to pretend ourselves. You know that feeling, don't you? And the actors just go on and on, don't they, about the state of the world and why they can't get laid, or they smash each other's brains in. And we just let them, don't we? That's what we expect of them, isn't it? Isn't it? It's what we love. We wouldn't be here. No one ever asks them to stop, do they? And the lights flash on and off, and there's loud music and the shouting. And everything's always so promising before the play begins, before they open their mouths. <laughs> That's the best moment, isn't it? We're all so expectant, we're all looking so lovely, and then the lights go down. There's always hope, though, isn't there, Eleanor? Hope is what brings us back, isn't it? Again and again and again. The hopeful moment. Are you hopeful, Ellen? Where are you with hope? Without hope, what is there? Don't you agree? Look at us. Look at all our lonely, hopeful hearts sitting here, start staring out, hoping for something to happen, waiting for someone to talk to us. Really talk. Yeah, right. Thanks for indulging me. So look, there is, there is, there is lots of things in there. And then in this moment in the performance, this is a really important moment. An audience member in the middle of a block gets up and leaves. They're had to leave by an usher. 
So we had two people when we did the play at the Royal Court, uh, who, who came in every night, sat down for five minutes, and at that moment got up and walked out. So Adrian could go, you say something then, you say something, as they walked out. And they were a plant, they were a plant. And I think the reason that they were there was to just, in that speech, for, the, for me, the whole of that speech, kind of gives me an idea of everything that I could possibly do in the theatre, everything I could possibly be thinking. It's shit, isn't it? Or it's weird, isn't it? Or look at what they've done with the space. Or do you, are you scared? Or are you happy? Or do you think this is great? It's great, isn't it? Maybe you don't think it's great. That's fine. And then also, finally, somebody gets up and leaves. And it's like us saying to people, you can walk out. If you want, you can walk out. That's okay. Because the play then goes on to explore some pretty dark stuff. Some dark stuff about what audiences see, what actors do, how we view things, how we see images. And none of it is seen, really seen. It's all described. It's all talked about. And we do talk about our work being a theatre that tells rather than shows. You know, that thing of... Oh, you know, you've got a show not tell when you're performing show not tell, but we go, no, actually, we're quite interested in the telling and what that might do in an audience's head, what images and ideas that might create. That feels like an important thing. So anyway, yes, yeah, there is a solo practice that's run alongside this. Uh, as Dara said, a solo practice, a lot of works I've been making alongside this both in Oslo, in Norway, where I was based for five years, between 2005 and 2010, and then since coming back to the UK in 2010, uh, a series of works that have started to use these principles and these ideas a little bit more, I suppose, to think towards ideas of social and political thought. A theatre that thinks towards, I think that's a really important not about, thinks towards ideas of social and political change. And I came back to the UK to start a PhD, which I finished in 2014, at Lancaster University. And my stated aim when I started that PhD was to try to create some work which used these methods, these ideas, to think towards social and political change. Because it's always run under the work. The idea of us being here, making something together, doing something together. And that feels to me like a pretty important or interesting place to have as a foundation for making a work that might think towards those things. And I think it's important that, uh, that theatre tries to think towards those things. Uh, and there's lots of discussion around what theatre can do. Or theatre can't change the world. It's not a place where you can change the world. And I, I wrestle with that phrase because on one level I agree with it. But I also think theatre is a place where you can open a space to think about where you are and what you're doing and how you're behaving and how we are behaving. So in a way, you can change things or think about changing things. You can think towards those things rather than necessarily doing them. And so I've, for the last five years, six years, seven years even now, started to focus a little bit in my own work and also in some work with Tim, because the play we wrote together in 2014 is a part of this, I think. Think towards how the theatre might acknowledge an act of gathering together, being together, thinking together about some ideas. And so the two pieces that I made for my PhD, that were submitted as part of my PhD, were called All That Is Solid Melts Into Air and Commonwealth. And they just were very simple pieces of work 
In one of them I stood and read a text about a group of people getting together in a room like this, something like this, somewhere like this. And they all got together to think about some things and they thought about how they might change the world and then at the end they all applauded and they got... So I tell a story of our existence together in the room. And in the first one, all that solid melts into air, <coughs> my explicit stated aim is, about, is, is that the piece is about how we change the world. I walk in and I sit down and I say hello. So one of the first things that I wrote in my notebook when I started to work on this was it begins with the silence. I thought that would be a good thing. I thought that it would be good if, to begin with, we all sat in silence for a moment. Then there's a long silence. And then I say, okay, so this is about how we change the world. And being honest with you, I want to be honest with you, I want us to change the world. And then in that play, I go through a whole load of ways that I thought about changing the world. So I talk about, well, I thought we might have some nice lights. I thought we might have some set design that showed that we were in Africa or something like that. And then I come to the conclusion, fictionally, I come to the conclusion that actually the best thing that we might do is just all sit together quietly for a bit. And then for as long as I possibly can hold it when I perform that work, sometimes it's only been 30 seconds, sometimes it's been five minutes, I just sit with an audience for a bit. And then I say, thanks. Look, on this page of the text, that's us all sitting together in silence, and then that's me saying thanks. That's my favourite page <laughs> in that play. So I just sit with an audience. I sit with an audience. Uh, and so, yeah, I started I start to think towards those things. And then when I, when I was getting to the end of that PhD, Tim and I finally made a work together, What Happens to the Hope at the End of the Evening, where I and he were on stage playing two friends, one who was called Andy and one who was called Friend. And, I, and we played in two forms. So I did Andy Smith performing, where I just sat on a chair with a music stand and I read my text. I just read it, I didn't even bother learning it. That's because I'm not a professional actor. <laughs> <laughs> That was the show, they got the reviews, not a professional actor, can't even learn his life. That's what it was. So, uh, yeah, and, and again, we played with notions of biography, because in that play I play Andy, and I play, I live in Lancaster. I talk about my house in Lancaster, my family, I talk about my family. At the time I was, I was about to become father to, a, to, to Alfred, who is now nearly four years old, and I talked about my wife being pregnant and all of these things that were really happening in my life. But they contributed to, to another dimension of a character who is kind of, you know, stuck in a way, stuck in a particular way of thinking. He was locked inside his house, and his friend comes to visit him, metaphorically locked, not really locked, comes to visit him and tries to kind of shake, shake him up a bit. Oh, they, they tussle, they fight, and all sorts of things happen. But yeah, at the beginning of that play, same thing. I always read the beginnings. Because, you know, I, I just, it just establishes the room with the audience. So in this play, I go, right then. Right, Dara, is everyone here who said they were coming? Great, okay. Thanks, everyone. <coughs> here we are. I don't know about you, but this, this is one of my favourite things to do in the whole world. 
just being together with some people in a room like this. A space like this, you know? A space where we can really be together, sit together and listen to a story. It's a Saturday night in Lancaster, a small city in the northwest of England. Surrounded by beautiful countryside, it faces west across Morecambe Bay and out towards the South Lakes. It's early summer. The warmth of the day can still be felt in the limestone walls of the houses that surround a public square. One of those houses is my house. Above the door, there is a Sanskrit inscription a mantra that evokes blessings that arise at times of enlightenment. It's 9pm and I am waiting. I'm waiting for my friend. I haven't seen him in a long time. So then over the course of that story my friend turns up and, and causes a lot of disruption in my life and we have a bit of a wrestle and you know, we, we, we argue with each other. And we're trying to reach, I suppose, we're trying to, our two characters are trying to reach a different world in one sense. I'm trying to reach the world through thinking together and being together and he's trying to reach the world through political action. Political action. Acting. And our forms are different. I'm sitting there contemplating things with my music stand and quoting from my PhD. I actually quoted from my PhD in this play. And he is acting. He brings on a set and, and a chair and a, a table and some and a bottle of wine and he tries to create a world, he tries to act a world and our differences are represented by our two forms playing off each other <coughs> and with the audience. And then yeah, things are just starting, things have developed again, things have developed again with this work, this dematerialised theatre. In 2000 and, uh, when was that? 2014, 2015 I first performed this play, The Preston Bill, which is a story, it tells a story about a man from the north of England called Bill from Preston. It was commissioned by a theatre in Preston. So I said, I'm going to call it the Preston Bill. I'm going to call it that. I'm going to honour the town from which it's commissioned. And lots of people said to me, you can't possibly call it that. Nobody will come and see it. They don't, they don't, they won't come and see it. They don't know Preston. And I would say what I said before. I said, well, I've never, if you've never been to Denmark, does that stop you from being able to watch Hamlet? <laughs> if you've never been to a place, does it mean that you can't imagine yourself in a place? And that, that play tries to imagine us being in the north of England. And in many ways, it's my favourite places to play. They're as far away from the north of England as I can get. Last week I performed it in Brighton. And I stand on the stage and I go... This is the north of England. Welcome to the north of England. And everybody just goes, great, okay, there we are in the north of England. I never have to show you anything. Or... And it's funny, when I play it in the north, it's different. But when I'm in the, it's nice when I'm not in the north, because I just go, here we are in the north of England. It's great, isn't it? And I haven't had to do anything. I haven't had to show anything. And it's light, and, it's, and, I, and I think it's important to stay light in its delivery. There is a kind of, there is, a, there is lots of principles at play in our work, but I think the five principles that are most at play are, are a theatreness. I'm borrowing from the Russian formalists here. Do you know the Russian formalists? You talked about the stoniness of the stone, so, and all of that, and to art trying to represent the, the thing that's the thing. The important things for me are theatreness, lightness, togetherness, 
hopefulness and presentness. There are five principles that are really important to me to try and think about when I'm creating work. <coughs> so those, that, that work is now developed and taken on new forms and new shapes. Last week I, I previewed, like Dara said, a play called Summit, which is a first for me. I've never, I've never written a play that I've not been in, that I've kind of given to three other performers. And I've been encouraged to do that, partly because the theme of that play, I wanted to explore diversity, I wanted to explore difference and diversity in that play. And one of the first images that came to me when I was writing that play was, was just a person sign, doing sign language on the stage. I thought, that would be really interesting, just watching someone doing sign language on stage. I don't have, I don't have any sign language, I have a little bit now, <coughs> but I didn't have any sign language, so I was kind of... Well, I can't do it. I can't be me that's performing that because I can't sign and also I want to explore diversity. And I am not a very, when people see me, I don't represent diversity. I'm a 45 white middle-aged man. That's not really representative of an idea of diversity for a lot of people. So that's just happened uh, and will happen again in the new year. I'm glad about that. And also I just had a meeting this afternoon uh, with a director that I'm working with about a Brecht play, or a, a, a piece that I've written together with him, which adapts, adapts the idea of the Lehrstück by Bertolt Brecht. Do you know about those? The Lehrstück of Bertolt Brecht were plays that he wrote in the 20s and 30s, which he wanted people just to meet and read together and then discuss what was in them. He didn't think actors should act them. He thought people should just get together and read them. So it's exciting to me that in the future, possibly, there is an idea of the audience holding all of the cards. The idea with that is that you buy your ticket, see it wherever it might happen, we're trying to find a place where it might happen, it can be anywhere, and that when you come into the theatre you get given a book. Just get given the book, and it's like, here you go, read that. That's the play. You are the play, you're the people who perform the play, and you're the people who tell the story and then hopefully discuss it. But it's really complicated to try and work out how to, ways to do that efficiently. That's what we're working on. So yeah, these things come from restrictions, giving yourself restrictions and reductions, but I think that that allows you to be creative. And even though <coughs> I started making this work because I couldn't afford to do all of these things, what I then find myself doing 10 years later, or 15 years later, or 16 years later, or whatever it is, is still doing it because I'm aesthetically very interested in it. I'm aesthetically very interested in what it means to try and do more with less. It's seven o'clock, so I'm going to stop there. I want to say thanks again, uh, and now it's time for questions and answers. Thanks. <laughs>